Hi, this is Larry Berger, sports senior producer, and you are listening to the great Robert Miller on his Follow Your Dream podcast. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 192 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is the great Leonard Marshall, number 70, the former defensive end for the New York football giants. He played 12 seasons in the NFL, the first 10 with the Giants, 83 and a half sacks, third in team history, three times selected to the Pro Bowl, and twice named Defensive Lineman of the Year. He won two Super Bowls with the Giants and had one of the most famous hits in NFL history on Joe Montana in the 1991 championship game. Since his retirement, Leonard has had various businesses and successes and he was also diagnosed with CTE and was a part of the class action lawsuit against the NFL. And you know that in every episode of this podcast, I feature a song of mine in the introduction and at the end of the episode. And I try to make the song relate somehow to my guest or the subject matter. And in this case, it was easy. I have chosen the song, The Winner from my album Made in New York by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, it's apparent. Leonard Marshall is one of the great winners of all time in the NFL. So Leonard Marshall, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Robert. How are you this afternoon? I am just great, thank you. I mean, listen, you're a hero of mine. I have been a New York Giants ticket holder since the beginning of time, okay? Wow. <laughs> and the era that you played in, in the 80s and into the 90s, that was the greatest era in the history of the team. Well, we were the Neanderthal men of football. That's oh, for sure. You, you guys were the best. Now, I got to ask you the question. You played next to or with LT. Tell me what that was like. Well, you know, it was amazing because, you know, when I joined the team in 1983, I inherited two big brothers in Harry Carson and Lawrence Taylor. Actually, three. I can't forget number 75, George Martin, or number 76, Curtis McGriff. But those two guys were synonymous to my successes early on because I dressed right next to them. So when you came in the locker room, the first locker you got was Harry's, the second was Lawrence, and the third was mine. And I think it was done by design, to be honest with you, Rob. <laughs> I mean, you guys were the cream of the crop in the NFL, really. I don't think there's been any team since that had the collection of talents that the Giants had at that time. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I don't think there'll ever be a front seven like the front seven we had in 1986. And you had this young guy that was coaching you named Belichick. Am I right? That's correct. That's correct. And what a genius he was. Did you think so at the time? At the time, I, I knew he was, you know, the 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 the, the um, uh, Urkel of football because he always <laughs> studied. He sleep, he slept, eat, drank, thought football from the time he got to the complex, if not before, 
till the time he left. So basically he had no personality back then as well. Very limited, very limited, <laughs> and very limited talk for you unless it was about football. And then he must've been like a genius, huh? Well, I tell you, the beauty of it was, I, I guess he was so close to his dad and his dad had so, so much success in sports. You know, I don't know if you knew this or not, but his father, Steve Belichick, coached Roger Staubach in college. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and, and, and that's why, you know, Bill had, Bill had such a love and a passion for the game that in the beginning was hard to understand. But once we put two and two together, we saw the pair of them together, we knew why and how he got to that, that point in his life. All right, go back again to those guys that you talked about at the beginning. LT being one of them, George Martin being another. You came up, you were playing next to these guys. What was it like? Well, I tell you, the, 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 like I said, the beauty of it, I walked into a, a veteran locker room that was about to go into transition. And Bill Parcells warned me about it before I came here because he told me, he says, listen, I'm going to draft you. If you're there in the first round or second round or one of the top rounds, I don't know if you're going to be there because, you know, it looks like you've got a lot of things accomplished at LSU. He said, there's a lot of teams and a lot of steam behind your career. Uh, and, and there's no telling what's going to happen. But if you're there when it's my time to pick, believe me, I'm going to take you. I'm trying to find a guy to replace Gary Jeter. So at the time, I had no idea who Gary Jeter was. You know, I mean, I, I knew of the name from football, but, you know, I didn't know a whole hell of a lot about Gary Jeter. You know, I turn around and here I come. I'm drafted. I end up getting number 70. I end up leasing the Gary Jeter's apartment. And I end up living five miles from the stadium. And then I meet all these other guys that were all his teammates that all missed him because now he's a Ram and I'm a giant. Did they take it out on you? Oh yeah. And they all took it out on me. And, and in the beginning, the only guy that really, the only two guys that really gravitated towards me were George Martin and Lawrence Taylor. And both of those guys early on befriended me and they kind of showed me the ropes, gave me the do's and the don'ts of dealing with Bill Parcells. You know, Parcells coached him as a coordinator but he was Lawrence's position coach. So it was a good thing to have Lawrence in my ear telling me about what kind of guy Bill really was. You know, just recently I read that they asked a whole bunch of NFL analysts who was the greatest player in NFL history. And I think every single one of them named LT. One guy didn't name him as number one. The other guys all named him as the number one guy. What do you think? Well, I'll tell you this, if, if he wasn't the number one guy across the board, I'd like to see or know who that number one guy was. Right. Because uh, uh, I can honestly tell you, I dressed next to him. I played opposite him for 10 seasons. I watched him good, bad, or indifferent. I watched his work habits. I studied him early on. Together, we were the Batman and Robins of our defense. And um, you know, one thing didn't go without the other. And, uh, and when we had it clicking, there wasn't two guys in football any better than he and I. You're right about that. Let's talk about you, because you were really an all-star, a real all-star on that team. And, of course, the hit that everybody remembers is the one you put on Joe Montana in the championship game. I think it was 1991, and you knocked the ball loose at the same time. Tell us about that. What's your, what's your recollection? Oh, my recollection was, is simple. I slipped, and my, getting ready, I'm in my pass rush stance. I slip, um, uh, next thing you know, I'm crawling. As I'm crawling, I look up. I never really gave up on the football play. 
And, and it's the kind of thing that coaches teach players all the time. And I'm crawling and all of a sudden I look up and I go, oh boy, this is going to be ugly. And he's still got the football in his hand. <laughs> and the only thing I could think of is what will happen when I separate him from the ball? Will either Lawrence catch it or Mark Collins catch it and run it in for a touchdown? And it will be the most dramatic play in football for football history. <laughs> As it turned out, I knock him out the game. Mark Collins whiffs the football. And Montana ducks Lawrence just before that, which enabled me to come from behind. And he didn't even think I was coming. And leave my feet and separate him from the ball. It's probably the greatest impact play ever in the history of football. I mean, it, it was certainly the greatest play that I've ever seen. And I think you knocked Montana out of the game for a couple of years. Am I right? Yeah, you're, you're about right. You're about right on that. Does he forgive you by now? I think he did. And, and, and you know, and I, you know, I said to the guy, listen, it's football. It's the business. It's the business we were in. So, you know, it, 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 the way it turned out, it, it, it could have turned out the other way. It could have been he could have completed the ball. Jerry Rice runs the touchdown. And they, they're the greatest team in football. They win three Super Bowls in a row. Just didn't happen like that. You know, I remember there was a play. You mentioned Jerry Rice. I don't know if it was this season or a different one. Montana threw the, it was a giant stadium game. Montana throws the ball to Jerry Rice. He catches it in full stride. He's headed for the end zone and he dropped the ball like about five or 10 yards before he got to the end zone. Do you remember that? That's the 49 to three game. That's the NFC championship game. The Super Bowl season, the 49 to three game. Okay. In 1986, yes. I mean, what were the odds of Jerry Rice, probably the greatest receiver in the history of football, catching it and then dropping the ball like that? <laughs> that was really funny. That They had a bad day that day. They got beat pretty bad in our stadium. It was a bad day for them. All right. Now, your quarterback through most of your career was Phil Simms. Am I right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Now, Phil Simms kind of came out of obscurity. Nobody really thought that Phil Sims was going to turn out to be Phil Sims. And I remember at one point, Parcell said something like, "You all you Giants fans are going to look back on that Phil Sims era and say, boy, did we have somebody great. What did you think of him? I, I thought Phil was a great player. I thought Phil was one of the most hard, one of the hardest working athletes in our locker room, probably one of the hardest working quarterbacks in our league. He had a linebacker mentality playing quarterback, and, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I could trust Phil Sims in the game. Um, I could trust Jeff Hostel in the game. Well, you had two quarterbacks in each one of a Super Bowl for you. Yeah, and, and, and the beauty of it was, I think, it's a shame that we had both of them at the same time because both of them could have led our football team. It just so happened that one of them led our football team very well, and one of them had to wait his turn to play. And then he won a Super Bowl ring. Wasn't so bad, huh? Yeah. All right, so tell me about the Super Bowl experience. Is it really so dramatically different than every other game you would ever play? It is everything and some that you would think of. I mean, I can recall, you know, and Phil will tell you about this, which is crazy. The night before the game in 86, he's staying in a room across the hall from me. And I end up, I'm, I'm nervous Nellie that night. You know, my mother's name was Nellie. 
And so my mother was calling me up and she's like, boy, don't be so damn nervous. Boy, you know, you ought to go out there tomorrow. You're gonna go out there tomorrow and just do your thing like you always do. There could be a hundred thousand people in there. Don't even worry about it. And I'm saying to myself, mom, I never played in a crowd that big before in my life. So the guys were teasing me. They're teasing me so bad, Robert, I ended up at the stadium four hours before I was supposed to be there the next day. That's how nervous I was. I can imagine. I mean, is it all the pomp and circumstance? Is it just, is it the lights, the action, or is it just the gravity of the situation? It's everything, Robert. You're on the biggest stage, 20 million people watching you. You know, you are the cat's meow that day. You sneeze, you do something stupid, you rub your nose the wrong way. <laughs> Whatever you might do, somebody's picking it up. Somebody's picking up something about it and they're talking about it. So it was probably the most memorialized time of my life. And uh, the, 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 the sad part about it, you only get there one or two times in your career if you're lucky. If you're lucky, right. If you're lucky. There's some guys that never got a chance to do that. Yep. And, and to those, I say, man, you missed a great opportunity. Well, you know, it just shows you again, football is a team game. And you can be the greatest player at your position, but if you don't have that team behind you and you don't have a little bit of luck too, that's right. Maybe you don't get there. That's right. And luck is luck is a, a word that uh, that often goes overlooked. It goes overlooked. Yeah, you know, I'm sure, like in all sports, probably comes down to one or two plays here or there, a catch, a miss, an interception, somebody knocks it away. You know, you can look at so many sports and see that the difference between, you know, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, it's thin, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I tell you, the craziest thing, yes, it is, it's very thin. And the other thing that's crazy, you know, you hear this as a cliche when you're a player, that it's a game of inches. It's a game of inches, man. And when you think about it, they're absolutely right. It's really a game <laughs> of inches. I know. Yeah. Sometimes you say to yourself, how do they know exactly where to place that ball? I okay. mean, 72 inches cost the Buffalo Bills a Super Bowl against my football team. The two most famous words in Giants history is? Wide right. Wide right, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you had a wonderful career. Tell us what you did afterwards. Oh, wow. I've, I've been in several businesses. I, I, I was a Series 7 stockbroker. I was uh, a professor at Seton Hall University. I uh, served as an executive in residence at Seton Hall University. I ran a football camp in Boca Raton to try to teach young Jewish kids how to play football. Um, <laughs> Any successes there? <laughs> I did. I actually had success. Um, I, uh, I had a fun time doing it. Met some great people along the way. Uh, uh, got a buddy of mine in South Florida by the name of Peter Kramer to thank for that. Uh, got another buddy of mine, Timothy Pine in Pompano to thank for that. Uh, and a few other people that I may uh, have overlooked. But uh, just had, you know, I've just had a, a, an amazing life and a blessed life. And, and I'm just so honored that, you know, football carved out a path in life for me that uh, I've been able to pretty much impede upon and utilize to take care of myself and my family. Good for you. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller. You're listening to my new single, The Fall of Winter, a collaboration with legendary rocker Jim Peterick from the Ides of March 
and formerly with Survivor, and featuring renowned guitarist Elliot Randall of Steely Dan fame and keyboard player Tony Carey. The reviewers have called The Fall of Winter a triumph and flexes real rock muscles. The track is available now for streaming on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming platforms, and also for download at the pgsstore.com. And you must check out the lyric video of the song on YouTube. The show notes have all the links. Thanks for listening, and keep on rocking. Why is it, do you think, that so many guys, athletes in particular, they just, they can't find their path after the game is over? What is it? Because you don't get a playbook, Bob, to to help you deal with life, to make decisions. When you're in pro football, you get a playbook. That playbook tells you where you have to be, when you have to be there, what to do when you get there, how to act when you get there. And then when you leave, you turn that book and you say goodbye. Well, when you say goodbye from the National Football League, it's a swift kick in the butt. Good luck, son. Have a great life. Try to figure out life now. Take care. We thank you for what you did for us. But the journey ends here. Nobody's there for the transition. No, no. And the transition is so harsh because you go from, from X, someone, someone taking care of the little things that make sense in your life, to now you having to do them yourself. And in most cases, the biggest thing that guys miss when they leave football, they miss an identity. They miss the ability to be cared for, the ability to be told what to do, what time to do it. And, and have expectations when they get there. And then some guys don't have a home, a, a home life or a structure. So they're single. So they, when they walk away from the game, they don't really know what the hell is going to happen. You know, you're lucky if you leave pro football after an illustrious career, you have a spouse. That spouse has a good job, whether it's a nursing job, a teaching job, uh, a custodial job, a professor at a university a director of EEO or affirmative action or some sort of HR position at a university, something of concrete that you as a former player, you can now have health insurance. Health insurance becomes your best friend when you leave pro football. Trust me. I can imagine. Well, listen, the average playing career is what, three to five years, something like that? I mean, you had a long career. Yeah, 3.2 to 3.8 years. And you got to play 3.3 years to get a pension. Really? Yes. And on top of that, if I understand correctly, the first contract that guys are given, the, the rookie contract, it's always a low ball kind of contract unless you're one of the very, very top guys, right? right? So everybody's kind of playing for that second contract. And how many guys actually make it to the second contract? That's right. And a lot of guys blow that first contract, you know, having fun, buying cars, buying liabilities, Bob, not buying assets, but buying yeah. liabilities. Yeah. You know, it's such a, it's like you used the word cliche before. This is almost a cliche when you hear about guys that, you know, just didn't spend it the right way, didn't, didn't, you know, come up the right way, didn't understand what they were getting into. And then, like you said, the the safety net's taken away. Yeah. And they got to live on their own. Yeah. The beauty of football now is the league minimum is 900,000. 
okay? And, and if you're an average player, let's say you're an average defensive lineman. Let's say you didn't even make the Pro Bowl. Hell, you can get paid $3 million now. You can get paid $3 million. Do you, do you know what I had to do? Barring not killing somebody for $3 million as a player? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, I, I would, you know, I wish I played in this era. But isn't it still the case that, let's say you got a $3 million contract, you get injured. Can't they kind of abrogate the rest of the contract? Or do they have to pay you at least for that one season? Well, there's, there's three ways to do it. You can deal with it through a Lloyds of London insurance policy. You can deal, it, deal with it through an annuitized program where you get a guarantee, uh, uh, a guarantee of payment of 70% of the contract. During the during the course of, of, of the career, so in the event you get cut, you 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 have a, a windfall behind you. So guys do that on their own. You're saying no, that they go to they go to their advisor and they get help. I see, but they have to do it. It's not the team that does it. No, the team doesn't do it. As a matter of fact, teams use to defer money. Now it's a tax. It's it's a, it's a taxable issue for teams. So now teams don't allow you to do defer money. I used to think that guys and I would want to defer money because I would want to take the money and have 12 months to work with it versus right. having a four month window to work with it. Right. So, you know, that, that creates an issue uh, for some players. Players used to think I was trying to uh, overthink the whole process. I wasn't trying to overthink it. I was just trying to be as smart as I possibly could be about what I'm being given. Right. You got to work within the system and understand it. Yes. I'm sure guys are not, you know, given encouragement and you know education as to how to do that they got to pick it up on their own i assume yes they got to pick it up on their own or they go back to school and they get some education or they get guys like robert miller who become their friend who advise them as a friend and say hey guy maybe you should be thinking about this right and not that right okay so listen football is a tough tough sport you got beat up i'm sure just like everybody else that plays that game did you know at the time that you were getting injured, you know, did you have multiple concussions and things like that? Or did it just, was it just part of the game for you? Rob, it was just part of the game for me. I mean, think of it this way, Robert. I probably had in the course of an NFL season, I probably had 40,000 blows to my head hmm. playing in Bill Parcells 3-4 defense. So if you take that and you multiply that times 10 seasons, that's 400,000 hits to my head. Yep. Okay, so let's take the average. The average guy that has, you go into boxing, a guy throws 400,000 punches at you. How many of you think are going to land or really connect with the head? A whole hell of a lot, right? So at least 8%. So that's 3,200 blows to my head that I need to be concerned about. Those 3,200 blows to my head, I'd probably say I was concussed maybe 15, 17, 18 times. But it's not so much the concussion. And that's the thing that people don't understand. It's the blows to the head and the buildup of tar protein on the brain, right. which causes you to have a problem, which that problem becomes chronic traumatic encephalopathy. CTE. And that's the education that players need to get. Yeah. You know, I read the book that was written about the whole CTE syndrome that was probably, it's probably 10 years old at this point. And I remember to this day that it started off with a little vignette about the woodpecker. Yes. Because the woodpecker was the only, is the only animal where the brain can go back and forth inside the skull and there's padding of some sort internally. So it doesn't cause the kind of injuries that happen to human beings. 
Yes. And, you know, like you were just saying, every time you're in the you're on the line, you get a hit. That brain is going back and forth inside your skull. And it may not be a concussion, but it's causing damage. Right. That's right. That's right. And, and that's what people don't seem to understand and don't quite wish to grasp. You need to grasp that because uh, that's the crux of the matter. The crux of the matter is not so many times that, not too many times that you've been concussed or whatever. It's the fact that you hit your head so many times and, and by hitting your head so many times, something's bound to happen. I remember John Madden, the great coach and commentator, saying that one of his biggest regrets is that he didn't know what was happening when guys got knocked out. You know, back in the day, people used to just put smelling salts under a guy's nose. And as soon as they came back, they put him back in the game. Yeah. He says they didn't know. Do you think that at the NFL did know about all of this? Oh, they knew about it. They had to know about it. The NFL does an awful lot of studies, excuse me, with the University of Michigan. And those studies or to help them understand uh, what happens with the human body. Okay, because keep in mind, we're not animals, we're humans. Right. You know, and, 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 and what made us heroes is the fact that we're humans. And what makes us humans today is what we need because of the game that we played at such a high level. I mean, when you think about, you know, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson and I had this conversation. When you think about a guy, 282 pounds with 9% body fat, who runs a 4.7 second 40, hitting a quarterback that's six foot tall and 192 pounds in a championship football game, and the impact of that play, it was almost like an 18-wheeler hitting a cat on side the highway. <laughs> I was bound to crush this guy. So, you know, people don't seem to understand that, but that's what our game is. You know, part of it is, as a fan, we're watching television. We're watching the game either on television or if we're in the stadium, you don't hear the sounds that go along with those hits. <laughs> you see them, you appreciate them, yeah. but when, they're, when you're right on top of it, boy, it must sound different. Oh, it sounds different. It sounds a lot different, Bob. It's you don't hear the 18-wheeler going into the guy. <laughs> it sounds a lot different, Bob. I'm always wondering how come guys aren't getting killed, okay? Yeah. Because if if you hit me like that, I'm dead. That's it. End of discussion. Yeah, I tell you, it's it, it's amazing. You know, it's amazing. But I, I, all I can say is, if 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 you're a fan and you get the opportunity to be at ground level and really watch an NFL game and really watch what goes on, you would be surprised at the speed, the power the agility and the athleticism that we as players and men who play the game for money, what we put into it, you'd be surprised. They tell you all the time that the rookies don't understand how fast the game is at the pro level. Do you agree with that? They don't. I agree with that. I agree with that. Wholeheartedly, I agree with that. Like all of a sudden, it's in fast motion. Huh? Yeah, I mean, Bill Parcells just teased the rookies when they came in to work for him. He'd tell them, "Now you're not playing, uh, you know, Troy State this week. You're playing the <laughs> Dallas Cowboys, son. So just understand, Aikman's going to throw it, and he's going to throw it hard, and fast. <laughs> and Emmett's going to run it, and he's going to run it hard, and fast. So if you're not ready for it, you might want to stay in the locker room." <laughs> <laughs> 
he must have been a great guy to work for. Uh, it was funny as shit. I mean, it was just, you know, every week something crazy came out of his mouth. But I loved it. I loved it. One of the great coaches of all time. Yeah. All right. So I know you were part of this whole class action uh, lawsuit against the NFL. And personally, I always felt like the players just got rooked in that lawsuit. I know that the old timers needed to get a settlement because they were feeling the effects of CTE and everything else. And it all sounds like a lot of money. They got you know close to a billion dollars or something like that. But when you think about the money that the NFL makes, it just seems to me like they rooked the players. What do you think? Um, I, I guess you could say they, in a sense, they did rook the players. I think the bad part about it is, you know, and and I hate to I hate to go there with this, but I'm going to have to go there with this. 73% of the National Football League is comprised of African-American or men of color. Those men of color are the ones that are standing up the most and the loudest about this because uh, these men play offensive and defensive line positions. They're linebackers, they're cornerbacks, they're running backs. Uh, there's less quarterbacks at that position. Yep. Uh, but the skilled people are mostly African-American. So... Severe blows to the head, chronic pain, guys addicted to drugs to deal with this stuff. Like I told you before, you don't get that 40 acre in a mule when you leave pro football. There's no guaranteed contracts. During my era, there were no such thing as guaranteed contracts. Now they're guaranteed contracts. Now there's a five year escape window for players and there's more money out there to help players when they leave the game. But there are a lot of guys that are broken up, beaten up, and battered from the game, both black and white, because I don't want to make it all black, both black and white, that that have not gotten what they were supposed to get as a result of what they put into the sport. Now, mm -hmm. now you got, there's another piece to this that's not talked about much, but it should be talked about, is that a lot of the black players were racially normed in this concussion lawsuit. And what I mean by that there was a certain stand, set of standards and a grid by which those black players had to exceed in order to qualify for a certain amount of money in the concussion claim. And a lot of players didn't qualify because of the norming status they put into uh, what was used to, uh, to qualify you under what's called a baseline assessment program. So now that the norming has been taken out, more players qualify for the money. However, time has lapsed. Right. Guys have either fallen off the wagon, died, whatever else. And now you got to go in and either cut their brain open to find out just how severe the CTE was uh, or not uh, in order for their families to qualify for the money. And that's guys like Junior Seau, Dave Durison, and some of the others who died. Right. And there's a lot of names that I'm, I'm going to even pass over. Right. But it's just a sad thing. You know, it was a basic, it was an insurance claim, Robert. And, and it could have easily been handled. And it got ugly. Uh, it got ugly between players and management. And it didn't need to go there. It just didn't need to go there. Well, look, it's a violent game. It's always been a violent game. You know, in your experience, uh, you've, you've gone through that. You've told us about it. It's exactly what we've read about. I'm so pleased that you've come out of this 
the way that you have. I mean, you're you're well spoken. You're you seem to be in good shape, and uh, I know you got underlying issues like everybody has. But uh, you know, I wish everybody would come out of pro football with the kind of um, successes that you've had. And uh, we got a Howard Cosell story here. So we're in Detroit to play the, New, the Detroit Lions, and Cosell is having dinner with somebody at a table inside the hotel at a restaurant. And this is when, as a team, you travel together and you couldn't really leave the hotel. So I walk in and so Cosell sees me and I'm walking with one of my teammates. I'm with uh, my teammate, Andy Head. Right. And Cosell says, oh, there he is. That's the fat kid from Louisiana. <laughs> and who's he with? Andy Head. And he goes, Head, where you heading? Head. <laughs> <laughs> It's like Cosell, so in that Cosell voice. And I could never stop laughing. So we go, we sit down, we order a hamburger and uh, I'm laughing my ass off <laughs> because, uh, you know, all the stories you heard about Howard Cosell picking that Ali and all that stuff. Here I am a 21 year old kid and I meet the guy. So I didn't know what to say to him, but I just kind of just laughed my ass off. That was my spatula. He was something else. There's no question about it. Yeah. Yeah, he was a trip. Again, Leonard, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast, and I want to wish you all the best in everything that you do going forward. Thank you so much, my friend. I'm glad we got a chance to talk. You're a pretty cool guy, man. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. <laughs>